At this time, if we've got children that'd like to go to our children's ministry, they can kind of coalesce at the back there, and most of them know right where they're going, and they can go right out there, and Rachel and Asher are going to take them out, and they're going to have a Bible lesson at their age level, and a bathroom break, and all that good stuff, so... I, really, I don't know why I always mention the bathroom break. I guess I'm fixated on the fact that maybe it's because I'm, if I have to go to the bathroom, I'm just, I'm just sunk. So anyway, hey, go ahead and open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7, if you've got them with you or whatever device you look up scripture on. Uh, it's a joy, just a joy to be with you today. As I, I stand up here, sometimes I do this. I'll, I'll stand up here during the music and I'll stop singing and just listen to you guys sing. Don't worry, I usually can't pick out many individual voices, maybe one or two. Um, I can always hear Dana, but, uh, <laughs> but it's just such a joy to hear you guys worshiping and singing to the Lord, and uh, it's just fantastic. So, uh, As I said, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, for the last few months, we've been on a long march through the book of Hebrews. I have scheduled it out for the rest of the year, and it's scheduled to end on December 25th. So I had this great plan, guys. I had a great plan. It was a great plan. We're supposed to be in Hebrews chapter 7 for the next three weeks, according to the the sermon plan that I've made, right? And so I have this great plan that instead of taking three Sundays to preach through the the chapter 7 of Hebrews, I'm going to do it all in one Sunday. Go all the way through chapter 7. And so that was going to be the plan. You guys were going to have to listen so fast. Well, apparently, God had different plans because I started prepping. I didn't even get through the first point, and I was already really close to the word count I go for uh, to know how long the thing is going to be. And so I I kept looking at it, I kept looking at it. Bethany was like, you know, I think that should just be three sermons. And I was like, I started looking at it, and I messaged some friends. I said, hey, pray for me. I'm preaching through the whole chapter seven. And they're like, ugh. That's really heavy. That, that sounds like more than one sermon. And I was like, yeah, okay, God, I, I got it. I got it. So we're only going to go through the first 10 verses this morning. Uh, so you're not going to have to listen as fast. Um, so we, as we've been marching through this book of Hebrews, we've seen that the, the main theme, kind of the, the overarching theme in the book of Hebrews is this. Jesus is better. In fact, that's what uh, I titled the whole series, Jesus is Better. So the idea being that by the end of this, we would have it really solidified in our minds and our hearts that Jesus is better than any thing else. In particular, as the writer of Hebrews is he's writing to a group of Hebrew Christians, we're going to talk some more about them in just a minute, um, but he's wanting to convince them that Jesus is better than the priesthood, he's better than angels, he's better than anything else that they could possibly uh, compare him to, and, did not, and he did not want them falling back into their old religious ways, because Jesus is superior to that. Now, Back in chapter 5, so we're in chapter 7 now, if we were to skip back in chapter 5, the writer had said that he wanted, he was talking about the, the high priesthood of Jesus, and how Jesus was a priest in the order of a guy named Melchizedek, who I referred to lovingly as Mel, okay? So he was a priest, a high priest in the order of Melchizedek, and then he said in chapter 5, you remember, he was like, there's more I want to say about this. But they were too immature. 
They were too immature. He wanted to talk more about it. So then he dives into this long digression of thought about the problems of their immaturity, how they were still needing baby food. They were still needing milk. They weren't ready for solid food. And he dives into that. And then he goes into talking about apostasy. And then he encourages them toward maturity, saying he hoped for better things for them, especially and particularly the things that were accompanying of salvation. But now we get to chapter 7, and he's able to get back to this guy Melchizedek and this, uh, this high priest, Jesus being a high priest in the order of Melchizedek and what that's all about. Now, if not for the book of Hebrews, we would not know a whole lot about this guy Melchizedek. To be sure, we don't know a ton about him, okay? I realize I'm going to preach an entire sermon. He's going to be really involved in it. But we don't know that much about this guy, Melchizedek. He's only mentioned a couple of other places in Scripture, Genesis and in Psalms, and we'll get to the, we'll get to the Genesis count in a minute. But it's almost, he's almost mentioned in passing. But here in chapter 7, the writer's going to unpack the significance behind what it means for Jesus to be called a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And I heard, I heard people pronounce that name really differently. I've heard it Melchizedek and all this. He's going to be Melchizedek or, again, Mel for short for us. But let's get right into the scripture. You can follow along on the screen or on your device or your Bible as I read. Beginning in chapter 7, verse 1. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man who does not have his descent from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the, in the one case, tithes are received by moral men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself who receives tithes paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. May God use it for our edification and growth. Let's, let's pray. Lord God, as we come and, and we come to this text and we read through it, and some of it's confusing and some of it, uh, we're, we're, just, we're not sure what it means. God, we pray you would help our hearts to understand. Holy Spirit, that you would move uh, in us, that you would help us to see uh, what you mean in your word, Jesus. And that you would help us to understand it and that you would help us to apply it to our lives and see what it means for our faith and our practice. And help us to be different because we encountered you in your word, Jesus. God, I pray that um, you would increase, Jesus, that I would decrease, that you would be clear this morning, and that our hearts would understand and obey, that you would give us that, that sweet gift of repentance where we've sinned, Jesus. 
And it's in your name I pray. Amen. This section of scripture is theologically dense, right? It's biblically, it's theologically dense. Now, I don't want us to miss that among all of the history and the cultural touch points here. It would be kind of easy for us to, you know, read over it and just kind of gloss over this part, kind of almost like I was because I was trying to, you know, in prepping, I was trying to do the whole chapter at once. So I don't want us to do this. This letter is, is written to the Hebrews, And if you'll recall, I've said this before, it was originally, possibly, we think maybe, was even a sermon that was delivered, and it was written to a group of tired Jewish Christians. Can anybody identify with being a tired Christian this morning? They were Jewish in ethnicity, but they were Christians in that they believed the gospel. They were facing a great amount of temptation and pressure to walk away from the faith of the gospel and return to the old covenant ways of worship according to Judaism. This letter was written to encourage them to persevere in following Christ because Jesus is better than that old way. That's where that theme comes in, right? He's writing to them to try and encourage them. Jesus is better, so don't fall back into those old ways. It's been described like this. It's been described as going to a wonderful restaurant and they bring out the piping hot dish, your favorite thing, or, or maybe your, your, your steak or whatever it is that you ordered at a restaurant, whatever the best meal is on the menu. And instead of eating and enjoy it, you turn to the waitress and you say, no, I'd rather have the menu back. I'd, have the, I'd rather have the menu instead. Instead of eating and enjoying it, you want the menu back. Well, here's the problem with that. The menu isn't the point. The food is the point. Jesus is the point. That thing that came before the menu was simply pointing to the wonderful meal to come. So these folks who the author of Hebrews, the the writer of Hebrews is writing to, they were tempted to fall back into the Jewish religion. But the writer tells them about how this guy Melchizedek, he tells them about him in order to illustrate the superiority of Jesus' priesthood for them and for us over and above the Levitical Jewish priests. So basically what I'm saying is everything that came before was pointing to Jesus. So if you read the Old Testament, it points forward to Jesus. And then when you read the New Testament, the Gospels tell us about Jesus uh, and about his life and his death and his resurrection. And then the rest of the New Testament uh, uh, tells us, looks back to Jesus and ahead to his return. But he's the point. So it's like when it, what they were in danger of doing is say, instead of having that fresh steak, they'd rather just have the menu. So the writer tells him about Melchizedek. Now, to divide this passage up so that we can logically take a look at it and help us to understand, we're going to look at three relationships from the text. We're going to look at the relationship of Melchizedek, or Mel, with Abram, or Abe, if you will. So we're going to look at the relationship of Mel and Abe. We're going to look at the relationship of Mel to Levi and the relationship of Mel to Jesus. And Lord willing, you'll see the reasons why Jesus is better And how the person of Melchizedek actually points to the Savior. And the writer launches right into a description of Melchizedek. 
here in verse 1 that reflects the description that's given in Genesis chapter 14 during uh, the account, the actual account of his interaction with Abraham. So we have to look way back into their history of Israel. So let's look at that passage as we investigate the relationship between Melchizedek and, and Abram, or Abraham, same guy, okay? Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20 says this. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, let me stop right there. That's another one of those weird Bible names that also sounds like it might be a cheese they sell in Wisconsin, okay? Chedorlaomer, I don't, I don't, I mean, does anybody have, is that your, anyone's middle name? Uh, I hope, I sure, I sure hope not. All right, after his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shava, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. All right. So the first question that I want to know here when I'm reading this, right, is why was Abraham fighting with these guys? Why was, well, Abraham's coming back from defeating these kings. So the question we need to ask is, we want to know what's going on, is why was Abraham fighting with these guys? Well, here's what happened. Lot and his possessions and the people in that area had been, had been taken captive by these kings. Lot was Abraham's nephew. And he'd been taken captive by these guys. And so Abraham had a very particular set of skills, you might say, and he went after those that were taken. Could you try again? Sorry. It's embarrassing every time it happens. Abe had a very particular set of skills, and he went after those who were taken. And he defeats them, he rescues Lot, and he heads out. So Abram meets Mel after a fight. He meets him after the fight. He's won. He meets this guy at the termination of war, as one scholar wrote. In modern culture, look, we don't put a lot of emphasis on what our names mean, okay? But in Israel, the meanings of names were important to the people. Yeah, we, we don't, I mean, you know what your name is. You might know what your name means. Uh, years ago, you guys know I spoke at a youth camp a few weeks ago. We talked a lot about that. Um, and years ago when I was uh, serving at that camp, there was an older pastor, a gentleman there named Tom Nesbitt. And he, and there were probably close to 200 people, 150, 200 people there at the time. He wrote down the meaning of everyone's name for them so that everyone would know what their name meant. I thought was pretty cool, right? Culturally, in America, we don't put a lot of emphasis on that. But in Israel, they put a lot of emphasis on that. It was very important and meant something to the people, the meanings of their names. Well, ironically, we're told, or maybe not ironically, we're told here that Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. Now, that name tells us a lot about the type of man we're talking about here. In the time of, of extremely depraved Canaanites, wrongful worship, and disgusting immorality of the men like the king of Sodom, you have this Melchizedek exercising a kingly rule of righteousness. 
This tips us off about something, that this guy's leading a holy life. He starkly stands out against the backdrop of the pagan cultures around him because he's a priest of Most High God. His name points to him being a righteous king, and the writer of this book of Hebrews points out that he was the king of Salem. Now, that's to say that he was the king of peace. So Salem... Uh, is often identified with Zion or Jerusalem in Scripture. Um, and the word Salem comes from the Hebrew word for peace, which is shalom. Okay? So when it says that, just a little background there, and it says that he is king of Salem, that is to say he's the king of peace. So Abraham meets Melchizedek at the end of fighting at a time of peace is when he meets this king of peace. This starts to connect, starts to make, make sense here. So here we've got him at the end of fighting, meeting him. Moeller points out that it could be said, in other words, that Melchizedek's kingdom aligns with the realm of peace. So among a godless and a, a warring people, you had here a king of righteousness, a king of right standing, a, a priest of God most high, who was ruling a place of peace among Around, in the midst of a people of war and depravity. We're going to revisit some of the significance of Melchizedek's name here in a few minutes, but I want to move on. Now, to us, when we read the description of who Melchizedek is, and it says he's a king and a priest, that initially may sound a little strange to us, but we typically move on. But to the Jewish people of the time, that would have been bizarre. That explanation, as he's being written about to these Hebrew Christians, would have been very, very strange. Well, why is that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. I have an answer prepared. Here you have Mel, who's described as having a ministry as both a king and a priest. Now, you need to understand that Israel differentiated those roles. The king role and the priest role were held in stark contrast. In fact, in the Old Testament, no priest could lawfully act as a king. And also in the Old Testament, no king could act as a priest. Now, we have some evidence of this differentiation being tampered with. You know, occasionally, I don't know if you know this, but the Israelites occasionally in the Old Testament would tamper with God's laws and commands <laughs> and break them outright. In Isaiah chapter 6, we have an allusion to that divide of priest and king. You may be familiar with this verse, Isaiah 6, verse 1. It says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So if you were to go and read about King Uzziah, you would learn some things about him. King Uzziah had defied God's law and acted as a priest. The consequence of that was that God struck him with leprosy and cut him off from the people. And he died in disrepute. And this shows the divide that was designed in Israel between the priestly and the kingly roles. So our ears should perk up a little, as the original audience would have, in Hebrews 7, when Melchizedek was king of Salem and also priest of Most High God. Now, it didn't say he was a priest of some pagan deity or some false god or idol. He was a priest of God Most High. So our ears should perk up at that. Further, 
our ears ought to perk up because Melchizedek, being a priest of Most High God, is not from the tribe of Israel. He's an outsider. And in referring to Melchizedek as a priest of God Most High, there's a statement being made about the superiority of God that would have essentially been targeted toward the initial Jewish audience of the letter. It would have been unthinkable to them that a non-Jew would be a priest of God, most high. That would have been unthinkable of them. I think sometimes when we read scripture, we forget that it has, you know, scripture has one meaning, it has many applications, but it was written to a particular audience at the time, and there's a meaning there for them, and there's a meaning there for us, right? It's the one meaning, and there's something there for them, something for us. And I think sometimes we forget how shocking some of these things would have been to them. Especially if you've been in church a long time. You've heard many sermons maybe on, say, Isaiah 6 or Hebrews. And we forget how shocking some of these things would be. The fact that this guy was a a Gentile, a non-Jew, who was a priest of God. So, anyway, Abraham and, and, and... He's called Abram. You guys know later, hopefully, Abraham, his name was changed by God to Abraham, okay? So it says Abram when we read in Genesis. In Hebrews, he talks about him as Abraham. That's where that comes from. God changed his name. I'm not going to go into the whole story of that, but I would encourage you to read that story in Genesis. So Abe has victory over these kings, and he's on his way back with Lot and his men, and he meets Mel. And Mel comes out. Not to negotiate with Abraham like like the king of Sodom had. Instead, he goes out to bless Abraham with bread and wine. Now, I don't want to make our ears perk up because when we hear bread and wine, we think of the Lord's Supper, right? We think of when when we do communion. Okay, I realize here we use grape juice. We don't use wine here. I understand that. But it ought to make our ears perk up. According to Richard Phillips... He not only spoke the blessing, but also spiritually ministered to Abraham's need. So he not only spoke blessing over Abraham, but he came out and ministered to his need. Now, there's an important point here that helps our understanding. And it's pointed out in in the text. The one who is greater always blesses the lesser. The greater one is always the one who blesses the inferior. So Melchizedek blesses Abram, who's the head of the Old Covenant, the, the patriarch of Israel. He, he's, look, Abraham is not a name in culture where there would have been more honor or there would have been uh, not looked at as someone greater in Israel life and Israel history and culture than the name of Abraham, maybe Moses, okay? But as they look back, to call him a patriarch was something of highest honor. So you have to understand that. And here you have a non-Israelite king who based on this passage of the inferior blessing the superior and you have this non-Jewish king and priest. Okay, so keep those in mind. I said this was heavy, right? You have this non-Israelite king who is the superior one blessing an inferior And Abraham responds to that by giving him a tenth of everything, which we refer to as a tithe, okay? I hope you're tracking on this, 
All right? So he gives him a tenth of everything, a tithe. Now, the writer of Hebrews is going to go on later and unpack the significance of what's going on in that response. Okay? But that's Melchizedek and Abraham. Okay? Now we need to move on to our next relationship to see how this continues to play out because it's kind of all building. Okay? So we got Melchizedek and Abraham, but now Melchizedek and Levi. You're saying, Pastor, Levi's not there in this interaction. He had not been born yet. You're correct. And you've been paying attention, so congratulations. All of the high priests in Israel, by law, had to be descended from Levi. They were required to be descendants of Levi, to be from the tribe of Levi. That's the Levitical priests, which, by the way, is where we get the name of the book Leviticus. I know, you're just wowed at that. I know, I can see it on your faces right now. The point... Melchizedek was not from Levi. In fact, he was outside of the nation of Israel. And the point of Melchizedek's priesthood had nothing to do with family ancestry because it was a divine designation. His priesthood didn't have anything to do with his family heritage. In fact, there's none listed. We find there's none listed. It says he's without father or mother there. Like there's not one listed. Because his priesthood had a divine designation. He was designated as a priest by God. He was appointed as a priest by God. And we find that his priesthood, that priesthood wasn't part of the family business. He wasn't a priest because his daddy was a priest. Okay. And that priesthood continues forever. The writer's spending a bit of time here. Okay. He kind of spent, and I know, I know it's, it's, it's thick. But the writer is spending a bit of time here convincing his readers of the greatness of Melchizedek, and he has a purpose behind that. But then he returns in verse 4 to the response of Abraham in giving him a tenth of everything. Now, when we think of a tenth of everything, I don't know, maybe we, I mean, I don't know, thankfully I don't know what anybody makes, okay? But we, we think of a tenth as, probably some of us think of it as a small amount, some of us think of it as a large amount. No matter what, at this point, Abram's coming back from the battle with the spoils of war. Okay? And when he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything, this is a lavish gift. Okay? This is a lavish, large gift. Abraham had won victory over a large number of the kings. He'd plundered their belongings. So the question is, why did Abraham feel obligated to give a tithe to this king of Salem, who was priest of Most High God? You know, this this interaction is called one of the most unexpected and fascinating parts of the Old Testament. You have the patriarch of the entire nation of Israel feeling obligated to give a tithe tithe to this guy, who was not Jewish, who was not part of the Levitical priesthood. In fact, the Levitical priesthood didn't exist yet. You had him giving a tithe, feeling this obligation to give this tithe to this guy. The answer is actually in the question, though. The reason Abraham did this, because he felt obligated to give this tithe out of obligation to, not, not to Melchizedek, but to God Most High. See, it was out of service to God, not necessarily to man. A tithe is not a tip, okay? Your tithe, it's not like a tip. It's not like leaving a tip at at a restaurant. It's a large payment that one of the most important men of Israel 
is giving to this priest who's outside of Israel. This is a huge deal. This would have sounded bonkers to the Jews reading this. Abraham's identified as a patriarch. That's the highest level of honor in Jewish culture. Those referred to as patriarchs of Israel, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they're men through whom God acted about to bring the setting for what Christ would accomplish on the cross. And we have a picture of the greater, the the more superior, Melchizedek, blessing the lesser, Abram, and Abram responding with this tithe, which we can assume is lavish amount because of the great amount of spoil. But why else is this significant? Why else is this significant? Look back at verse 5 in chapter 7. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. See, in Israel, the tribe of Levi, the priests, they received tithes from the other tribes. The other sons of Abraham gave tithes to the Levites, and that's how they were supported. And Abram, giving this tithe to Melchizedek, and God including that in Scripture, shows us that the priestly order of Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical order of priests. Now, why would he want to prove that that order is superior to the Levitical order of priests? Because he says that Jesus is of that priestly order, that superior order. Again, he's all of this trying to prove to them Jesus is better. He's doing it through a a very logical, logical and kind of complicated argument that he lays out for them using things from their history and their culture. Abraham was the father of the Levitical line. And he paid the tithe to Melchizedek. It's even described that since they were not born yet, the, the Levites, the priests, that since Levi was not born yet but still in his father's loins, it is if the Levites themselves were tithing in a way to Melchizedek also. Now that sounds weird to us because we don't understand like the corporate identity in their culture. But the corporate identity of one representing all is a very biblical idea in their culture. Further, Melchizedek blesses Abram, who looks already before this to be the most blessed person on the face of the planet. He says he's the one who already had the promises. He'd already he'd had the promises of God. He's already the most blessed person on the face of the planet. So who can bless someone that great except for someone who is greater? Now, someone may object and say, I don't, I don't know about that, Pastor. Well, let me point out to you that Abraham knew it. Abraham recognized that Melchizedek was greater, and he humbly paid the tithe to him as a recognition of his inferiority to Melchizedek. It was an act of humility. So why go to all this trouble to explain how great the order of Melchizedek is? Because the author wants to point out that the priesthood of the Old Testament was always meant to point to something greater. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. So that's Melchizedek and Levi. So we hit Mel and Abe, we hit Mel and Levi. But now we need to talk about Melchizedek and Jesus. We got to talk about Melchizedek and Jesus. Because there's a significant connection here between Melchizedek and Jesus. See, Mel is set forth here as a 
type of Christ. Now you need to understand in literary terms what a type is. A type is some other person who symbolizes and anticipates the one who is to come. So a type is someone who is a type of something or a representative symbol of that which is to come. Which brings us to a question that we've got to answer. So if I'm going to make this statement that Melchizedek is a type of Christ, we have to ask, in what ways is Melchizedek a type of Christ? Again, glad you asked. Here's some answers. Number one, if you're taking notes. Melchizedek was both king and priest. The kings of earth were maybe righteous in part. A lot of times, they were really good at showing their lack of righteousness. They were not to be priests, as I mentioned earlier. But Jesus is a king of righteousness and peace, and can therefore be entrusted with the office of high priest for us. He's qualified for the position. As both king and priest for us, he's the one go-between or mediator of our entire salvation. And he willingly gave his life on the cross in the place of sinners like you and me, making payment for our sin. He, he died in our place and three days later rose from the dead, proving, proving that God accepted the sacrifice once and for all and showing that he's the only one who could serve as our eternal high priest. As king, he was true And he had royal power to govern his kingdom, to subdue our hearts, and to defend his people against all enemies. That's how Melchizedek is a type of Christ. One of the ways is that he was both king and priest, and Jesus is both king and high priest. Second way that Melchizedek is a type of Christ goes excuse me, he goes out to bless Abram in the presence of the Canaanites. He goes out in this area amongst this backdrop of war and depravity to bless Abram. This is a type of Christ's ministry to us. Richard Phillips writes this, when our battle is over, the risen Jesus Christ will bless us before the eyes of the world. Abraham was despised by the world and we are too. We are too. Scripture tells us we'll be despised by the world. Our blessing is not visible to our eyes or the eyes of the world at the current time. But Jesus the Christ recognizes us and acknowledges us as belonging to God. And there will come a day when all eyes will see it. The fact that in the Genesis account we find Mel bringing bread and wine to Abraham speaks of the body and blood of Christ, which we remember through the Lord's Supper. This type of Christ was bringing the very thing that we use to remember the death of our Lord, the thing that brings us spiritual refreshment, the death of Jesus, the gospel brings us spiritual refreshment. And we remember that through the partaking in the Lord's Supper and through bread and wine, or in our case, Welch's or whatever they sell at Walmart, right? Uh, or Aldi. Uh, I don't know where our grape juice actually comes. Oh, we use those little prepackaged cups. So Amazon. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> right now it's Amazon. Sorry for those of you who work at grocery stores. Uh, anyway, and so, so here he is bringing the very thing that we use to remember the source of our spiritual refreshment, the gospel, 
many years earlier, that's what this guy who's a priest of the Most High God is seen bringing out to refresh Abraham. That's not a, that's not a mistake that that's in there. That's not just thrown in there for the heck of it. Right? When we read that in the Genesis account. The gospel is a source of spiritual blessing to all who believe it. And Christ ministers to us followers of his from the same source by the Holy Spirit who indwells believers in Christ. Getting worked up, my throat's getting dry. Number three, the third way that Melchizedek typifies Christ I already discussed the meaning of his name as king of righteousness and his title as king of peace, but both of those apply extremely well, and I would say ultimately well, to Jesus Christ. Jesus lived a perfect and sinless life. He lived a righteous life. He secured righteousness for us by giving that perfect life as a substitutionary sacrifice. Therefore, men and women can have peace with God. He, Jesus Christ, is the only way to have righteousness that you didn't earn and don't deserve credited to your account and to have peace with God. Charles Spurgeon, one of my old dead guys, you guys know I love him, he commented on this, on these verses, saying this, Note well the order of these two and the dependence of the one upon the other. For there could be no true peace that was not grounded upon righteousness, and out of righteousness, peace is sure to spring up. See, the order is important. Jesus came to establish righteousness first, and then peace. This is why the Jews had such a problem with him. They were looking for a Messiah to come in, to be a strong military leader, a general, and overthrow the Romans. But the true Savior, the Messiah, the Son of God and the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, came to give his righteous life for sinners. He came to serve, not to be served. And here we see who? The, in, the superior Melchizedek coming out and serving Abram. Number four, the fourth way that Mel typifies Christ. Fourth and final way is when it says he's a priest forever in verse three. When Jesus was raised from the dead and had ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father God, he took up an eternal priesthood. He is a priest of our salvation forever. He lives forever, so he will always be there to mediate for you, to show that his blood was spilled for you. He's always there to intercede for you. When you die and you stand before God's throne, Jesus will be there too. If you've repented of sin and believed the gospel as a follower of Jesus, he'll be there with the wounds that he earned on the cross and charging your sin debt to the account he has already paid in full. And his never-ending priesthood secures eternal life for him to give to you. This is good news. This is incredible news. So what do we do with that? I was, I was at the house last night, and I was, it was late, and I was going over the sermon, and I was adding some stuff, and I was thinking, so what do I tell you we do with that? Because this is great news, and we can all say amen and yes, and I can't wait for that day. Well, the, the writer of Hebrews has gone to great lengths to convince the Hebrew Christians who received this letter not to turn back, not to turn back from Christ to Moses. 
He wants to keep them from turning from the gospel back to law. Both Moses and the law looked to and pointed to Christ like the menu I talked about earlier. But what about you? What are the reasons for you to turn to Christ, to honor Christ, and to trust Christ alone for salvation and everything else you need in life? I have three reasons. Three reasons. Reason number one, because Jesus is excellent. Because Jesus is excellent. I feel like Bill and Ted. Because Jesus is excellent. The excellency of Christ. No one else but Jesus could be the fulfillment of what Melchizedek preconfigures. Jesus is the only one who fits into this portrait that was painted of someone who is both king of righteousness and king of peace eternally. No one else can serve as both priest and king for us. Only Jesus. He's excellent. He's better. And the author wants to say, hey, Christians, why would you want anything else when you already got the best? Reason number two, the ministry of Jesus. The ministry of Jesus. As I talk about this one, I'm going to invite our musicians to come back up to the stage. The ministry of Jesus. See, Jesus offers the blessing of God. He distributes spiritual nourishment through the gospel, by the Holy Spirit. And true blessing comes only from acknowledging Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord. That's the only way true spiritual blessing comes, is through the message of the gospel. There's a lot of people that want to tell you all kinds of other ways. But the reasons you should turn to Christ, to honor Christ, to continue to persevere in Christ, to not turn back to some other religiosity, is because Jesus is excellent and because of the ministry of Jesus, that he offers blessing, that he, he intercedes for us before God, that he is that high priest for us forever, that true blessing comes only from acknowledging him as Savior and Lord. And reason number three for us to persevere, reason number three for us to trust Jesus is greater and better. Reason number three is this, there is no other way. There's no other way. Apart from Jesus' righteousness, there will never be peace for you. If peace is what you are seeking today, you will only find that true and comprehensive peace in the person of Jesus Christ. People seek, especially in our world right now, people are seeking peace in all kinds of ways. They're, they're seeking it. You can go online, you can find lots of different people who will tell you how to have personal peace. People are searching and they want to offer you all kinds of ways to find peace. Maybe you've sought after peace in the world's ways. Maybe you've looked for peace in substances or in a career or you've looked for peace in, uh, in a relationship. However, apart from righteousness, there's never peace. When you try for peace without righteousness, by the way, righteousness that can only come through Christ. So when you try to get peace, Without righteousness, it fails every time. It fails in your home, it fails at work, and it fails in your heart. Because anywhere that sin reigns, there can never be peace. The only place where there can be peace is where Christ reigns. True peace. 
Anywhere that sin reigns, there can never be peace. But, but, but Jesus, but Jesus. Jesus is our king of righteousness and our king of peace. He offers to you cleansing from your sin. He offers atonement and forgiveness that you don't deserve and you can never be good enough to earn. And he died to give that to you and to me. And it's a free gift. It's grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. And if you can't earn it, you can't lose it. Once you got it. So the question for you this morning is, will you take him at his word? Will you believe him that he's better, that he's worth it? That he's the only way? That he's the only way for you to experience peace at work or at home or wherever else? I wanted to read a couple of passages of scripture as an encouragement to you as we close. John 14, verse 27 says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus offers peace, the only true peace. And then in Revelation 21, verses 3 through 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is our great hope in Jesus, that we persevere while we're here, we cling tightly to the gospel, and one day, at the culmination, he wipes away every tear. And everything is set at perfect peace. Would you stand and pray with me this morning? God, as we come to this time of of responding to you in worship, 